well, hey, let's, let's go ahead and look at our passage for this week. Remember last week we looked at Romans 3, 21 through 26. Um, and I said, hey, we can't get through this whole passage. I wanted to preach it all in one sermon, but it was just not possible. So we're going to look at part two. Uh, last week's title for the sermon was the righteousness of God has appeared. This week's title is the righteousness of God is displayed. The righteousness of God is displayed. You ever watch a movie or a show um, and you think, it's, it's the introduction, like you watch the first episode or the, the, the movie starts and you're like, who's the main character in this story, right? That's a really important part because if you don't understand who the main character of the story is, it kind of, the rest of the story doesn't make sense. You might say, well, why, why are they talking about this person so much uh, if you don't realize they're not the main character? That would be weird. I think in our story, when we think of the redemption story, the gospel story, the story of God saving humanity, a lot of times we get the main character wrong. We get the main character wrong. We think we are the main characters in this story. That, that, that Passion Week, that death on the cross, that resurrection from the dead, it's all about us. We are the main characters in the story. Well, I think today we're going to see the main character, the one who's doing the action in this passage that we're looking at is not us. It's God himself that is the main character. He is acting in history, and he's acting um, in that week to save us. We're, we're the object of the action, but he is the one that's doing the action. He is the main character. He's the subject noun. If you look back on your Shirley Method English, he's the subject of that sentence. He is the one that's doing all this action. And it's important for us to realize that. We need to read this passage not with, from a human, earthly perspective, but with a heavenly or divine perspective. So as we go through this, I want to show you the divine perspective on this passage to see it from God's eyes, what God is doing from his side, and then how that impacts us as, as believers. So let's look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Romans 3, 21 through 26. It says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin falls short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was, not, it was to show his righteousness at the, at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we saw last week that there's this righteousness from God that has appeared. Remember the word righteous and the word justice are the same in the Bible. Dikaiao. We just have to translate it differently in English because we can't say righteousify. But when it says that God justifies us, it's saying that he makes us righteous. He looks at you, if you're a believer in Jesus, and he says, not guilty. This person is righteous before me. That's what it means to be justified. So we talked about that righteousness, that justification that comes from God uh, last week. But now we're going to see really how that was made possible. So in this passage, we're going to kind of look at the last half of what we just read. And in it, number one, we see divine forbearance. 
First thing we see in this passage is divine forbearance. Forbearance means passing over, not not taking into account, looking over, passing over. The sins that were from Adam to Jesus, in some sense, God had passed over those former sins. He had not brought wrath against those sins, at least not in full force. We see God punishing folks in the Old Testament. Um, there's, there's consequences for their actions, but this verse, um, kind of taking the, the, the 30,000 foot view of the Old Testament, he says, in, in the former days, God had passed over sins. God had passed over sins. He chose not to bring wrath, his full wrath, in the Old Testament. So I want you to think about the Old Testament for a second. If you think of what's the place in the Old Testament where we think of God's wrath being shown, I think one place is Noah's, Noah and the Ark, right? We just read that with my kids in our family devotion. And their, their faces, when they see God act out that way um, towards sinful humanity, is it, it's, it's interesting to see their faces. They're just like, why? Why did he do that? But we see God's wrath poured out on the earth in Noah, the, the story of Noah, but yet God saved some from that. So in some sense, God's wrath was displayed there. But even that display of God's wrath was not him bringing the full force of his wrath as he does in Jesus. If we compare those two things, Jesus' death on the cross and the wrath that was poured out on humanity in the Old Testament... The wrath that's poured out on Jesus is even more because he had passed over former sins, remember? But also think of all the other sins that God had passed over in the Old Testament. If you've ever uh, read through the Old Testament, um, you you see some stuff. There's some stuff in there. If you start on your Bible reading plans and you make it through, you know, Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's rough. But then when you hit Joshua and Judges, you start seeing some really, really rough Things that humanity has done. If you think of the patriarchs, I mean, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham was a liar. He lied about his wife. He came into Egypt and he thought, hey, these Egyptians are going to kill me and take my wife because they think I'm married to her. I'm just going to lie about it and say, nah, she's just my sister. You can basically, you can have her. Just don't kill me. All right, that's what he did. Jacob stole his brother's birthright. He stole his brother's birthright. We go on from there, we see the sins of the patriarchs, but also the sins of the Israelites in Exodus. What did God do for the Israelites in Exodus? He saved them up out of slavery and fed them miraculously with food that fell from the sky, all in, on the, for the purpose of taking them to a new land. And what they do throughout that whole process? They complained. Why did God bring us out here just to die, just to kill us? And what is this manna? It's getting old. I'm tired of this food that comes so often. They complained about the miracles God did for them. You go from there of seeing the sins of the Israelites in the Exodus to seeing the sins of the nations in Joshua. These nations that were in the Holy Land as the Israelites were going to be brought there by the Lord were very wicked people. One of their practices was to sacrifice their children to appease their gods, to the God of Olmec. That's how evil that that group of people was. You get into the judges, and after the Israelites move into that land, they don't really act that much better. You see, judge after judge, they they fall and they do wicked things in the book of Judges. And then you get to all the kings, and it feels like every other king is, king so-and-so was like this, and he did not follow the Lord. King so-and-so was like this, and he did not follow the Lord. 
line after line after line of these evil kings. And God passed over all of it. He looked at all those sins and did not bring his wrath. And as we look at that, we might think, man, that's, that's a problem, isn't it? Isn't that a problem? That brings us to, we've seen this divine forbearance that we see in this passage. Now there's a divine dilemma, a divine dilemma. How can God be just and a justifier? How can he be right and just and holy and call people who are sinners right and just and holy? How can he do that? That is a problem. We often phrase this, uh, this question as how can a loving God bring judgment? Right? How can a loving God send somebody to hell? That's a question we often ask, right? And that's a fair question to ask because God's character would demand us to ask that question. Isn't God loving? Isn't God forgiving? Isn't he merciful? If he is, from our perspective, then X, Y, and Z cannot be true. If God is loving and just, or loving and, and merciful and gracious, then he cannot bring wrath. But I think the other question is valid as well. It's not, we shouldn't just ask, how can a loving God bring judgment? We should also ask, how can a just God grant forgiveness? How can a just God grant forgiveness? How can he say to the murderer, to the thief, to the liar, to the rapist, how can he grant those people forgiveness? I hope you feel the weight of this divine dilemma that we see in the Bible. How can a holy God forgive sin? How can a gracious God bring judgment to everybody? The problem is the sin of man and the character of God. Do you, do you feel that? God's character is what brings about this problem. If God were not holy, our sin wouldn't matter. Right? If God wasn't holy, then it wouldn't matter if we sinned. It wouldn't matter if we took advantage of other people or subjected them to, to, to um, injustices. It would, none of those things would matter if God wasn't holy. So God's character brings about this problem, this divine dilemma. How can God, who's loving, bring judgment on people? How can God, who's holy, forgive somebody for a sin? How is that even possible? So this divine dilemma requires a divine solution, and it's in this passage, and his name is Jesus. It's not just a plan, it's a person. God sends his own son, Jesus, into the world to save sinners. And how does he do it? Well, this says, we're all, we all sin, we're all justified by his grace through, Je through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. How often do we use that word? You don't say that very often at work, right? You're like, man, our boss was really mad, so I said sorry to, uh, to, to propitiate him. You know, We don't say that word. It's kind of a funny word for us to even see here. That word propitiate, uh, is, it, it's, it's the idea of, of, of making a God propitious or, or satisfying the wrath of God. There's a wrath that's due to humanity, and he satisfies that. But there's some debate on how we translate that word or understand that word or interpret it. So here's the three options. Number one, it's propitiate, which means there's, God has wrath against us, and Jesus satisfies that wrath. He pays for that, that wrath. He satisfies it. So that's propitiate. The other option 
is that it should be understood as expiate. Expiate, that means to remove something or take away something. So the idea of taking away sin. God put Jesus forward as an expiation, a removal of sin. Also makes sense to us. The other option is to translate it as mercy seat. Does anybody have the uh, Christian Standard Bible? Does anybody have the CSB? Well, CSB translates it as the mercy seat. It's interesting that it would, that it would translate it as that, right? Propitiation, okay, satisfying wrath. Expiation, taking away sin. Those kind of make sense, but how does mercy seat relate to that? Well, in the Old Testament, this word that Paul uses here, that propitiate, was used in the Old Testament to describe the mercy seat. The mercy seat. The place of atonement or the place where God met with his people. Exodus, you guys don't have to turn there, but Exodus 25 says this about the Ark of the Covenant. Everybody knows what the Ark of the Covenant is, right? It's that, it's that box that was given to the, the people of Israel. Um, they would carry it in two, on two long poles, and inside of that would be things that in some sense represented the sinfulness of, of the people, how, how they fell short. The Ten Commandments that revealed sin but didn't cure sin. Um, Aaron's staff that budded that represented rebellion. Manna of where the people had eaten the manna, but again, complained about it. Inside of this ark were all those things. And on top of the ark, this is what's there. Exodus 25, 17. You shall make a mercy seat. When you hear mercy seat, that means that's that word propitiation from the New Testament. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold and hammered work shall shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. And one piece of the mercy seat shall you make the cherub on its two ends. The cherub shall spread their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So there's this this box that we were talking about, and there's a covering that goes over it, something that covers what's inside. And that was referred to as the mercy seat, the place where God would meet with his people. These angels would stand on one end and they'd cover it with their wings. But in the middle there, that covering is the mercy seat. And this is what would happen on the mercy seat in the book of Leviticus. Then the priest, he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring it, bring its blood inside the veil and to do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So in the Old Testament, when a sacrifice was made in the, in the tabernacle, that blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat, the place of atonement. So it brings us to this question. Which is the right interpretation? Is it that Jesus satisfies God's wrath on the cross? Is it that Jesus removes sin from us on the cross? Or is it that he is the place of atoning sacrifice on the cross? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. He is all of those things. He is a propitiation for our sin. Jesus satisfied God's wrath. 
Jesus is the object of our faith because Jesus is the subject of God's wrath. He's the object of our faith because he was the subject of God's wrath. On him was poured out every, all the wrath for every sin of his people. All of it was poured on him at one time. If you imagine the amount of water it would take to cover the earth to judge the sins of man in the Old Testament, it would be infinitely more to pay for all of the sins that we have committed. And that's what happened to Jesus on the cross. The, the full force, all the weight of God's wrath poured out on Jesus in that moment. So he is the propitiation for our sins, but he's also the expiation for our sins. What Jesus did on the cross fixed the problem we had in our hearts because of sin. What Jesus did on the cross fixed the problem we had in our hearts. He removed that punishment of sin. He removed it, an expiation. And it's also the mercy seat. There is no other place that we can go but to Jesus. He is the place of redemption. There's no other place you can go to, to get what Jesus offers. There's no other place you can go to get what Jesus offers, which is forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, a place to meet with him and experience that atoning sacrifice. Jesus is the solution to the problem of sin. He was divine. He was sinless. He was a substitute that died in our place. And now he has risen again, which is what we celebrate every Sunday. But especially we celebrate that on Easter Sunday coming up. So if you want to see who God is and if you want to see what he has done to make things right. And if you want to see how he feels about humans and their sin Look no further than the cross, because on the cross is where God's character is most clearly displayed. God's hatred for sin and the shedding of the only innocent blood that's ever been. That's God's hatred for sin. Yet it's also God's display of love for sin, because think about this. There was divine. There was wrath that was due to humanity. I think we got a visitor. Hey, how are you? Welcome, welcome. So God's wrath was due humanity, was due on humanity, yet he also, not only was the problem with humanity, he provides the solution to the problem. It wasn't that humanity had to fix themselves. He said, hey, there's a problem with you guys. Fix yourselves. No, it says God put forward Jesus as a propitiation. He provided the solution. So on the cross, God is, his character is most fully displayed. So we've seen that there was a divine dilemma because of the divine forbearance. There's a divine solution that God has given. And it results in a divine display of God's character. In Jesus, God was shown as just. He was shown as just. That's what verse 26 says. It, meaning that Jesus dying on the cross, it was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just. That he might be just. He is perfectly just because he has brought wrath on sin. No one can accuse God of overlooking sin any longer. There was divine forbearance, but Jesus, God has brought wrath against all the sin. No one can accuse him of being a lazy judge who's sitting on the side and not making right judgment. She has brought wrath on sin. He is just. 
So in Jesus, God is shown as just, and in Jesus, God is shown as the justifier. God makes people right. Those who turn from their sins and trust in him, turning and trusting, we just call that faith. Those who have faith in Jesus are made right before God and granted forgiveness. So we ask the question, how can a loving God bring judgment on sin? And how can a holy God grant forgiveness to sinners? The answer is Jesus. In both, or in that one act, Jesus does both things. He shows that God is just. He does punish sin. He doesn't just look over it and excuse it. And in Jesus, God shows that he's the justifier. He forgives people and makes them right. In that one single act on the cross, God is shown to be just and the justifier. So where do we run? Where do we go to when this wrath comes, when the storm of God's wrath is going to be poured out to us? Where do we run? We go and we find shelter in the rock of ages that Jesus is called in that old hymn that we're about to sing. I want to read those words to you from that, that, that great hymn written by Augustus Toplady. It says this, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from your wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from wrath and make me pure. Make God just and be the justifier and make me pure. Verse 2, not the labors of my hands can fulfill your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. It doesn't matter how much we cry out or what we do with our hands. Nothing can save us except for Jesus. Verse 3, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look, for thee, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Verse 4, while I draw this fleeting breath, while mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown and see you on your judgment throne, when we stand before God's throne, what's going to save us from his wrath? Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Are you hiding yourself in the rock of ages? Are you trusting in that propitiation, that sacrifice for your sins? Are you trusting in that? Because that's the only place you can go to find, comfort, to find uh, safety from God's wrath when it's poured out. Only to that rock where you can hide yourself from that storm. Are you trusting in him this morning? Let's pray.